Welcome to the Someone Summer podcast. It's Friday, December 18th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 42. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. And join me in welcoming my new website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com. This is going to be an awesome space for all things fertility awareness, and if you're curious about FAM or if it's right for you, head on over to my website and check it out. Don't forget to sign up for my fertility awareness group program that's starting January 15th, 2021. Join an intimate gathering to learn fertility awareness skills and discuss each other's unique charts. I hope to see you there. Though most of us have been taught that we were given the right to highly effective birth control with the invention and legalization of the pill, the history of fertility control is as old as humanity itself. The fact is that people of all cultures and in all periods of history have used and will continue to use forms of fertility regulation. We've been motivated by several complex factors, and we aren't all that different from our ancestors in this regard. They too wanted to space their offspring or to simply choose a life without having children. Others may not have wanted to bring children into an environment where they could not be well-nourished, housed, cared for, or to have to suffer a life of enslavement, war, or other hardship. The reasons for fertility control are endless, and also include things like trying to control fertility because of a person's age, keeping sex a secret in sexually repressed societies that warned against premarital or extramarital sex, and sometimes even so that a child would not be born under certain numerological, astrological, or other mythical specifics. A variety of methods were used to interrupt early pregnancy in antiquity, both pre- and post-coital methods, but post-coital methods seem to be the most common across cultures. This means before or after sex, one or more forms of fertility control were utilized to either stop fertilization, barriers for example, or interrupt implantation, like herbal contraceptives, which occurs about a week later. Even though contraception has largely become the dominant paradigm regarding fertility control in the modern era, some people who menstruate still prefer abortion, and this may be because abortion is safe when carried out correctly and will be utilized more rarely than contraceptives, which must be used every day and have many adverse health consequences. Some modern menstruators even utilize forms of herbal abortifacients to maintain privacy and control over their fertility choices, which can be a matter of safety or to exercise a less costly option. The antagonism between how we view contraception and abortion can be traced back to Margaret Sanger and the origins of the modern birth control movement. Sanger herself did not champion abortion and contraception equally. In fact, she believed that birth control would eliminate abortion. This has created a chasm between birth control rights and abortion rights, though they're often spoken about as one movement. The focus has become about fertility control preconception, which has actually exacerbated a taboo around abortion and the right to end a pregnancy at your will and for no other reason. Now I want to talk about autonomous fertility control methods throughout the ages. The methods used to control fertility in antiquity are diverse and expansive, and the herbs used were locally found, which means that they can be found all over the world. The earliest documentation of abortifacients goes back over 4,000 years in both Chinese and Egyptian medical texts. It's likely that Egyptians and Mesopotamians were controlling their fertility by using the leaves of the acacia shrub. 
Herbs are the most popular form of ancient fertility control and include herbs such as silphium, rue, parsley, acacia, pennyroyal and other mints, juniper, tansy, golden seal, artemisia, blue and black cohosh, slippery elm, sweet flag, and cotton root. And these are just a small fraction of what was used. For example, indigenous tribes of North America used over 100 different medicinal herbs to produce menstruation. It's also likely that since the Neolithic period, when people began to keep domestic animals, that these cultures observed the fertility rituals of the animals, and in particular what livestock animals would eat to help expel their afterbirth. We can infer that people learned about abortifacient herbs from this proximity to witnessing animal birth. We should also go over what the difference is between an amenagogue and an abortifacient. Although they're sometimes used interchangeably, they do have unique properties. Amenagogues are herbs that bring on a delayed menstruation whether or not it was a pregnancy that caused the delay. They're used for a variety of menstrual and hormonal issues. Whereas abortifacients work to create an unsupportive environment for a fertilized egg to produce a menstrual bleed, causing the embryo to be expelled and ending the pregnancy. Abortifacient herbs also have heavy overlap with herbs that stimulate and promote labor during childbirth. Herbal abortion wasn't the only method of fertility control, though. Ancient peoples also used many other kinds of barrier methods, such as pessaries, suppositories, herbal spermicides or motility reducers, and sponges. These were meant to either block fertilization outright or to create irritation around the cervix that would cause an abortion. Condoms seem to appear on the scene much later, towards the 1500s, but this is still debatable. The most successful barrier methods were ones that covered the cervix in some way, such as birch bark, seaweed, or beeswax crafted cervical caps, and combined its usage with some form of a sperm motility inhibitor, like honey or neem oil. Other acidic-based spermicides, such as lemon juice, were deployed to kill sperm. Some other barriers included various gums, like gum arabic or the gum of the acacia tree. Now, it's also important to look at the history of contraception in context of the historical cultures people were living under. As those changed, so did attitudes about contraception and about sex in general. For most of human history, the idea that an egg and a sperm were meeting together to create a fetus was not present. Aristotelian biology taught that the male person was the giver of the seed, while the female person would provide the soil for the fetus to grow in. Medieval theories about sex were too varied to have one conclusive paradigm, but many thought female pleasure was necessary for conception, and that's why sex workers didn't become pregnant. Meanwhile, we know that sex workers have a rich history of autonomously managing their fertility. There were also beliefs about quickening, also known as ensoulment, and these have popped up all around the world. This defines the pregnancy itself as not beginning until the fetus can first be felt actively moving inside the womb. Sometimes certain cultures believe this was the point where a deity breathed life into the being and their soul was formed. Essentially, until very recently, quickening was the best method of determining if someone was pregnant, except for midwives who would be trained to notice the smaller changes to the body and other symptoms. When we talk about the ambiguity of pregnancy, this means the act of our bodies suspending life and death inside of us, and it's uncomfortable for people to understand this gestational power. And for most of human history, the first trimester of pregnancy was a part of this gray space, the in-between, so to speak. And during this time, it was perfectly normal and acceptable for a person to restore their menstruation without the pregnancy being considered legitimate. 
Because of this ambiguity to the process of gestating, most cultures understand pregnancy as a process rather than an absolute change of your state of being. This sentiment was true in India, China, Europe, Africa, the Americas, and the Caribbean. This sentiment contrasts with the Protestant fundamentalists and Christians, who ignore the medical division of pregnancy into trimesters and have held to the belief that every fertilization is an absolute, each pregnancy immediately creates a new person with a soul that should be carried to full term. It should be clear, though, that before 1869, the Catholic Church had widely different opinions on abortion, including debates about quickening and ensoulment, as well as an interest in amenagogic and abortifacient plants, and appear to not have seen early termination as against their faith. So this means that for almost 2,000 years, the majority of church writers and canon lawyers accepted early forms of abortion in most all circumstances, as well as later forms when the mother's life was in danger. This has also created quite a bit of revisionism in the modern anti-abortion movement, because many falsely claim that the church's stance on abortion has not changed from the ancient times to the present. All of this to say that things were not so cut and dry, and that in medieval times it was difficult to accurately determine the early stages of pregnancy, and thus several forms of fertility control were at their disposal. This brings us to the question of where contraception ends and abortion begins, as we have already laid out that pregnancy is a process. In this process, there is an overlap between the prevention of pregnancy, or what we call contraception, and the termination of pregnancy, which we call abortion. One may think, well, anything that prevents the sperm from eating the egg is contraception, and anything that destroys the fertilized ovum is abortion, but this is also up for debate. Nor do we actually know the method of action behind modern contraceptives, like the IUD, meaning that ultimately the way that they function to prevent pregnancy is unclear. Sometimes anti-abortion activists use this as a talking point to liken contraceptives to abortion. Of course, how you categorize these fertility control methods depends on your definition of when you believe the pregnancy begins. Even John Rock, one of the first researchers who developed the birth control pill, tried to position his research as being compatible with Roman Catholic doctrine, even though he and other researchers were not totally clear about how and when contraceptives intervened in the process of reproduction. Etienne-Emile Ballou, who developed the abortion pill that we know as RU486, also did not see fertilization as anything more than the first step in the progress of the establishment of a pregnancy. He called the pill a chondrogestive because it worked, quote, in a middle range, countering gestation before implantation or in pregnancy's earliest stages. The ambiguity of pregnancy prevents a logical contradiction for fundamentalists, and for those of us that want to increase access and ease to all forms of fertility control, we must understand that the language we use doesn't always have exact definitions, especially for those we seek to guide. In fact, the difference between contraception and abortion are rather imprecise and fluid. So why did folk knowledge of autonomous fertility control disappear from view? How did we get here? When speaking about autonomous fertility control, we have to ask why we don't know anything about this when it appears commonplace in ancient society. Herbal and barrier methods of contraception have existed into antiquity in most all places on earth, yet there is now a broken chain of knowledge. Each culture has to confront and deal with their own unique broken chain of knowledge and how to rekindle that relationship through both education and practice. 
we don't have to completely start over in regards to finding new forms of contraception because there's actually a wealth of knowledge that's already been made much of the time by our ancestors. European witch trials are an important part of the historical degradation of fertility knowledge in Europe, but these ideas quickly spread to the Americas and elsewhere across the world. The essence of the witch trials were not about individual witches, but rather about the rapidly changing social relations of the era. Women's particular knowledge of the natural world was demonized, and midwives and other healers were condemned and delegitimized. In the wake of the plague, which killed many, and with the new development of nation-states and the transition from feudalism to capitalism, it was of particular interest to the ruling class to rapidly increase production of human beings, and so control over fertility was imperative to these goals. This continued to manifest itself through the American system of chattel slavery and is one of the major drivers of primitive accumulation of wealth under capitalism. It was peasant women who were primarily responsible for the militant resistance to the new capitalist class relations, of the loss of the commons and of communal life, and so the witch trials were about condemning dissidents who resisted this and to stamp out their movement. With this, we lost a lot of contraceptive and medical knowledge. The urbanization that occurred afterwards also moved rural people into cities, continuing the breakdown of this oral and written knowledge. The effect of lost lineages is that there is a propensity for useless or harmful practices to become mixed in with tried and true fertility knowledge. When male doctors began to replace midwives and other wise women, they reinforced ideas around women's fertility knowledge as nothing more than superstition. This means that sometimes you will see remedies that have a seed of truth to them, but have since become distorted or largely symbolic instead of connecting with their direct amenagogue or abortifacient qualities, thereby contributing to the delegitimization of the technique and separating it from its true history. If you have a cultural ritual that occurs around puberty, look up whether or not the herbs, food, or flowers related to the ritual connect in some way with amenagogues or abortifacients. We might also want to consider how Margaret Sanger, famous birth control pioneer herself, may have contributed to this movement to degrade away from ancestral menstrual knowledge. It's well documented that Sanger didn't have the best view of the people she was supposedly working to get access to the pill, calling the working class women that came to her clinic, quote, confused, misled, and ignorant. She clearly did not have the scientific curiosity required to inquire further about the variety of contraceptive knowledge that was already known to the women in her clinic. Instead, she reinforced the shift from autonomous fertility knowledge to a supposed scientific understanding that was under the control of white male doctors. The overall trajectory of these changes made sure that by the middle of the 20th century, most menstruating people were not empowered to control their own fertility, and they weren't learning menstrual care from their elder family members. The reason why this knowledge breakdown is potentially dangerous is that herbs are just as powerful as any other synthesized form of pharmaceuticals. The potential to cause toxicity with an herb is absolutely possible, and just because something is natural, this does not mean that it's free from harm. So people in the modern era have tended to shame those who want to utilize herbs with a concern that they won't know how to use them properly. Now this is a fair point, and one must be fully knowledgeable about the side effects of herbs as well as their synergistic or inhibitory effects with other medications. Ironically, we could say that in the contemporary moment, the public interest in alternative healing, 
which perhaps led you to this podcast episode, has not necessarily led to a recovery of knowledge that has been lost, but has continued to lead to further knowledge breakdown by the widespread sharing of folk remedies that are, at this point, purely symbolic and, frankly, not effective. Now, to understand how knowledge broke down, we also have to talk about the criminalization of these forms of knowledge. After the witch hunts, abortion providers like midwives and sex workers who would have a reason to deploy this knowledge with regularity were criminalized and separated from civil society. This happened in tandem with the rise of professionalization in medicine, which kept black people barred from practicing medicine as well as white women. Independent abortionists, commonplace in previous societies, were systematically shut out of the business from this criminalization. Similarly, with sex workers, the shift from madam to pimp, which happened after the criminalization of sex work, meant further breakdown of contraceptive knowledge. Both of these historical moments greatly strengthen cis male power in society and are the roots of what we consider to be living under modern-day patriarchy. Both sex work and certain forms of autonomous fertility control are still criminalized to this day. It's important to note that in contrast to what we have been told, progress in regards to reproductive justice and birth justice has not moved on a steady path towards freedom. In fact, a whole process of knowledge degradation, cultural breakdown, and criminalization was necessary to reinvent the supposed novel idea of contraception as dispensed in a pill or device. So with this, we can reposition that knowledge was not simply lost, but was purposefully suppressed. In Caliban and the Witch, Sylvia Federici states that, quote, the criminalization of contraception expropriated women from this knowledge that has been transmitted from generation to generation, giving them some autonomy with respect to childbirth. It appears that in some cases this knowledge was not lost, but was only driven underground. By denying women control over their bodies, the state deprived them of the most fundamental condition for physical and psychological integrity and degraded maternity to the status of forced labor, in addition to confining women to reproductive work in a way unknown in previous societies. We cannot have this discussion on criminalization without mentioning the role of forensic medicine. During the 19th century, European and North American doctors became very interested in how to detect criminal interference in pregnancy. This was relevant to forensic specialists because it was their testimony in abortion cases that was gaining them established legitimacy as a field of study. Gynecologists were also looking to, quote, detect illegal abortion to further condemn midwives and other women practitioners who they regularly accused of being abortionists. By the early 20th century, both religious organizations as well as professionals like doctors and lawyers had declared that abortion was equivalent to infanticide, aka murder, making the punishment serious. But the public did not necessarily agree, and it was still widely accepted that abortion before quickening should be legal. Because of this, it was rare for abortionists to be brought to trial before the 1930s, and because of this, first trimester abortions were still routinely administered by midwives and abortionists up until that point. Forensic science first appears in the Middle Ages, but had always been involved in the regulation of fertility, and the earliest documented forensic cases were around pregnancy, abortion, and infanticide. Ambroise Tardot was a professor of legal medicine at the medical faculty of Paris. 
and consultant to the Paris police and the prefecture of the scene, meaning he was summoned by police as an expert witness in France and other places in Europe. He was well known for upholding police viewpoints and supporting evidence that benefited the prosecution. Tardot created instructions on how to detect traces of criminal abortion when women tried to conceal them. These instructions would have been taken seriously by early forensic pathologists and gynecologists. He believed that abortion left behind markings on the body of the woman, as opposed to the embryo remains or fetus that would typically be needed for a criminal charge, and his expert authority could be used in criminal trials to help provide decisive truth without any clear evidence. This included instances such as finding a midwife with a contraceptive herb, or by accusing her of recently replacing her curtain rods. Despite this, abortion proceedings very rarely ended in conviction because it was indeed difficult to prove, or to distinguish from natural causes of miscarriage. In fact, Tardo recommended that physicians quit talking about natural miscarriage altogether in order to avoid, quote, confusing vacillating statements. But yet Tardot was motivated by getting more guilty verdicts and elevating the supposed science of forensic science. Similarly, Eli Vanderwalker, a gynecologist from Syracuse, New York, developed a pseudoscientific method for determining the difference between miscarriage and abortion based on the, quote, tenderness of the uterus. This could be used to satisfy ourselves as to the existence of a criminal element, end quote. Vanderwalker is also included moral evidence, which could be, quote, observed by a physician as a part of determining when an instance of criminal abortion had occurred. This could have meant anything as subjective as observing the woman's suspicion of the doctor or unwillingness to be examined. In Sex, Herbs, and Birth Control, Anne Koblitz states that Tardot, Vanderwalker, and their colleagues relied heavily on intuition driven by their own class prejudices. Most of them evinced a persistently hostile attitude towards women, especially working-class women. Anything the woman said could be used against them in order to bolster the initial judgment of the medical professional, but otherwise the women were not listened to at all. It is clear that the goal was not just to criminalize and prosecute abortionists, but also the women themselves, or anyone who advertised or dispensed abortive preparations. Forensic pathologists and gynecologists also focused on female dissection and sexual surgery, documenting details about changes to the breasts and areoli, squeezing the nipples of their living subjects to check for milk, probing the vagina and cervix for tenderness, inspecting the abdomen and vulva for stretch marks, color changes, and other violating practices. They were interrogated about the timing of their menstrual flows, and their underwear, sheets, and sanitary napkins were examined. Though much more covert today, the core attitudes of physicians towards their menstruating patients is still of patronizing condescension, as well as suspicion, distrust, or contempt. Paralleling the witch hunts, when abortion became an illegal act, this impacted working-class, poor, and immigrant communities at a far greater proportion than upper-class and urban, middle-class white women. Reliable abortionists were driven underground and... The American Medical Association continued to work to discredit midwifery. It's also worth discussing Margaret Sanger's negative impact on abortion narratives during her influence on contraceptive innovation. Contrary to the more modern revisionist history that contraception and abortion rights were equally weighted issues during the women's rights movements, Sanger's work is a good example of how that isn't necessarily true. 
Sanger was known for telling the tale of a woman named Sadie Sachs, who was ill from a previous abortion and without contraceptive information, later died from a second abortion. This story was used to frame abortion as a dangerous procedure, which almost always resulted in illness or death. One of the biographers who studied Sanger's life was unable to verify the truth of this story and also criticized Sanger's autobiographies, calling them, quote, self-aggrandizing books filled with petty deceits and outright duplicity. Sanger took the position that contraception could eliminate the need for abortion entirely, and in the earliest advertising for her birth control clinic, women were told, quote, do not kill, do not take life, but prevent, and far from a feminist icon, Sanger aligned herself with physicians, eugenicists, the Ku Klux Klan, and others in upper-class circles. She actively strengthened anti-abortion sentiments by spreading misinformation about abortion as a scary and dangerous procedure with lifelong consequences. Sanger's clinics, nor Planned Parenthood, took an official position on the fight for legalizing abortion in the United States, which is often overlooked in the mainstream progressive narrative. They did not immediately begin providing abortions and actually utilized the phrase, quote, not now, after the Supreme Court decision. When looking at Margaret Sanger in context, we have the right to be largely skeptical of her venerated place in any movement for reproductive justice, with a special consideration for her work in dismantling abortion access by perpetuating harmful falsities about the procedure, as well as in increasing the taboo around abort-efficient knowledge. Because contraception and abortion directly affect population growth, balance, or decline, they are of particular interest to politicians and other parties who exert direct and indirect control over workers. Demography, or the study of trends in the populations of different groups, has largely ignored that menstruating people have been agents of demographic change. Thomas Malthus, an English clergyman well known for his public statements about overpopulation, actually was not an advocate for birth control and instead preached, quote, moral restraint. Demographers after Malthus's lifetime in the 18th century continued to utilize a false, quote, demographic transition theory that stated that before the Industrial Revolution, that populations experienced high mortality and high fertility. In other words, this is the idea that menstruators never regulated their fertility because they had to constantly produce new offspring to keep up with the fatality rates of their time. The theory goes on to explain that the socioeconomic changes of the industrialization revolution are responsible for lower mortality and lower fertility. The theory ignores the idea of menstruators consciously limiting their own births, or that they had the knowledge to do so. In fact, it reinforces the sexist stereotype that menstruators were ignorant and that they did not think about or find solutions for managing their own fertility. Demographers also ignored the fact that gynecological surgery was what was most responsible for lethal perforation during abortion, not midwifery. In fact, midwifery was a community, a network for the wide menstrual and birthing needs of its constituents. In this way, we can contextualize demographers as having had implicit assumptions about methods of contraception and abortion that contradicts historical knowledge. In fact, these methods were more accessible and more effective before the demographic transition towards industrial capitalism, and if anything, the demographic transition marked a severe decline in contraceptive knowledge and technique. Despite the evidence of lower-than-expected fertility in pre-demographic transition populations, 
most demographers flat out refuse to allow for the idea of intentional fertility control being deployed by menstruators themselves before the Industrial Revolution. In contrast, anthropologists were much more likely to have included the context of the introduction of Western biomedicine via colonialism and how this negatively impacted indigenous fertility management customs. It is this, rather than the mortality decline touted by demographers, that explains the population increase. I'd be remiss to mention demography without talking more directly about population control and eugenics. 19th century racism was steeped in fears about the rising public welfare. Conditions were improving, and this meant that working-class, non-white families could grow larger, offsetting white European political and economic control. This continued to develop into the 20th century with multimillionaire Hugh Moore's pamphlet, The Population Bomb, distributing over a million copies. Similar to Sanger, these campaigns focused on restricting fertility for certain specific populations, abroad and in the U.S. Moore also helped fund Sanger's International Planned Parenthood Foundation. These organizations, along with John D. Rockefeller's Population Council, all included eugenicist viewpoints. Sterilization, or permanent removal of fertility, also connects to the history of contraception and eugenics during this time period. Nazism utilized sterilization, as well as the U.S. sterilization crimes committed on indigenous American, Latinx, specifically Puerto Rican, and black menstruators. The U.S. government had several sterilization programs elsewhere in the world disguised as family planning in places like Africa, India, and Asia. Several dangerous forms of contraception were tested on third-world people, such as Depo-Provera, the Dalkin Shield, Norplant, and others. This understandably caused distrust from black people, and both the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam were critical of family planning organizations as targeting their communities. Feminists had to do the work of reckoning this truth with the need for reproductive justice to be a central part of the liberation movement. The young lords were swayed by Puerto Rican feminists in this regard, and the leadership of Elaine Brown caused the Black Panthers to adopt a reproductive rights agenda. So to recap here, there are a couple things that caused the loss of contraceptive knowledge, but being written out of history has a pretty big impact on the knowledge chain. Feminist scholars have worked hard to find more primary sources that were unacknowledged or discarded, looking more into oral history, pamphlets, artifacts, or other cultural mementos. These sources have largely challenged the assumptions of demographers and created more scholarship around menstrual history and autonomous fertility control. As you can see, many aspects of this history are complex. No matter which epoch of human life we are speaking about, most all people who can get pregnant have had a desire to manage their fertility, and this modern moment is no different. We have to begin reframing menstruators' role as agents of their fertile life. Clinical abortions and hormonal contraception are two of the standard methods of fertility control today, but there are also plenty of instances where people who menstruate either cannot access or the risks would outweigh the benefits of using either of these options. Although still taboo to discuss, many people would choose an autonomous form of fertility control if they were educated about it. And each year, many people do contact me wondering what they can do to safely and effectively end their pregnancy at home. Most of us are familiar with clinical abortions that are performed in a healthcare facility, but these are still by far the most common today. 
but the use of the pill method of abortion is becoming more widely utilized, both in the U.S. and around the world. This is most often a two-pill method of abortion that's made up from mifepristone and misoprostol. Some advantages to this method is that the majority of the abortion experience happens at home, and menstruators are able to also see the chorionic villi as the pregnancy exits the body. In a certain way, this brings people closer to the experience of self-termination, and many people report feelings of fascination and awe, along with the other emotions that may come with a decision to have an abortion. Herbal abortion is the deliberate choice to take herbal preparations of reliable menstrual-promoting herbs. These herbs have several classifications and exert different actions on the body, such as implantation inhibition, estrogenic, oxytocic, gastrointestinal irritation, and others. The goal of these methods, the history of which are diverse across culture and geography, is to make the womb environment unsupportive so that a bleed is stimulated. This occurs somewhere between the point of fertilization and the establishment of the implantation, which goes on gradually for weeks. Although the details of herbal abortion methods are beyond the scope of this episode, I hope to make an episode on this in the future. Herbal abortion methods are widely documented throughout history, and abortifacient herbs grow on every inhabited continent on the planet. Some of the earliest medical texts ever discovered discuss herbal abortifacients, such as the Egyptian Codex Ebers, 1550 BC. Some modern menstruators may choose to continue to engage with their history and may have other reasons for utilizing herbal abortion, like to avoid exorbitant cost, to avoid physical exams and doctors, to avoid side effects, to be discreet, and others may simply choose because they prefer this method or they've used it successfully for years, therefore knowing by experience that it works. Herbal abortion today is much more commonplace than people think, and the allopathic model treats any autonomous abortion as inherently dangerous, sounding similar to Sanger. Because of this, very little, if any, modern scientific inquiry is spent looking at herbal forms of fertility control, and the industry continues to be dominated by large pharmaceutical and medical device corporations. Lastly, I want to talk about menstrual extraction, which was developed as a communal fertility control technique. It is exactly as it says, a method of extracting the uterine lining, which builds up each menstrual cycle from the monthly production of estrogen by the ovaries. Menstrual extraction has several therapeutic uses, such as to relieve heavy menstrual bleeding, to assist with an incomplete miscarriage, as well as to effectively end pregnancy in the comfort of home. It's performed by midwives and other self-help groups who are trained using the tools, and it is not possible to perform on yourself. The advantages of menstrual extraction were numerous before abortion was legalized in the United States, and Roe v. Wade actually broke down many of these community care networks that were becoming stronger in the 1960s. In 1971, Lorraine Rothman and Carol Downer began to experiment with medical equipment to create the Dellum. This two-person device was much easier to operate and allowed for personal control of the suction. Downer considers the teaching and usage of menstrual extraction to be a key radical feminist action to ensure reproductive sovereignty. Menstrual extraction can still be performed today by trained individuals, and most all the materials needed to perform this home healthcare technique are available from medical suppliers. 
menstrual extraction will become of more interest any time that abortion restrictions are tightening, but we would do well to acknowledge that people may also want to choose this option for other reasons, and that menstrual extraction is an extremely safe and quick technique for clearing out the contents of the uterus at any time. As I've continued to do work that involves fertility, the resourcefulness of menstruating people throughout the ages cannot be understated. There are so many examples of people utilizing what was around them, and practically every method you can imagine. But this beautiful history is hidden from view because of erasure, as well as a process of de-skilling us from these disciplines. Despite claiming that we need to be evidence-based, I find it curious that more people aren't interested in the wide breadth of fertility control that is present in ancient traditions of fertility regulation. We actually have thousands of years of evidence to draw from. The revision of contraceptive history has kept autonomous forms of contraception and abortion hidden from view, and patriarchal scholarship has discredited them as folkloric, while upholding that the medicalization of menstrual life and birth was a definitive scientific advancement. By contrast, menstruating people have always been interested in controlling their fertility, whether that be spacing children or whether or not to bear children at all. The history of contraceptive knowledge was probably learned from studying mammalian animal behavior after giving birth, and fertility knowledge was passed down through matrilineal systems involving oral stories and customs. Today, some of the customs still remain, though they are divorced from their abortifacient underpinnings. I hope that this podcast was able to bring you closer to understanding your place in this history and to connect with the power of self-mastery. Self-mastery does not have to be solo, though, and techniques of autonomous fertility control, such as herbal abortion and menstrual extraction, thrive off of a healthy network of mutual aid and solidarity. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with someone. Join me in welcoming my new website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com. This is a space for all things fertility awareness. And if you're curious about FAM, head on over to my site and check it out. Also, please don't forget to sign up for my fertility awareness group program that's starting January 15th, 2021. Join us for an intimate gathering to learn fertility awareness skills and discuss each other's unique charts. I hope to see you there. This concludes episode 42 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.